1: Hello, this is Everything Else, the FT's culture podcast. I'm Grizz.
0: And I'm Al. This week we'll be discussing two new films, The Party and The Meyerowitz Stories, and what they say about British and American
1: humour. And later on, Al will chat to the poet, playwright and performer Inua Ellens.
0: We have a new Facebook page. Come and chat with us at facebook.com slash everythingelsepodcast. Hi, Grizz.
1: Um, morning, Al. How
0: are you doing?
1: I'm well. I, I've i been doing a lot of thinking this week, specifically thinking about the whole Harvey Weinstein.
0: What do you even call it? Well, I think we can call it a catastrophe, a, a scandal, like a horror show.
1: A horror show. a
0: shit show. I think we can <laughs> call think, it that. I
1: think we can do that. Yeah. And so... In the last week, there has also been a very interesting female response to what's been happening. The hashtag MeToo has, of course, been trending on Twitter. And this is where women have been expressing and confessing their own experiences of sexual harassment, assault, everyday sexism. And it's really taken off. I mean, I think you can open your newsfeed on any kind of social media platform and, and there'll be lots of these things and I think this is a good thing. Women coming forward is a real act of bravery. Friends of mine who I had no idea have you know, have been kind of telling things this week, so I think that's great. I have, however, been feeling quite sort of conflicted about it. I feel like with something like Me Too, there is a real kind of burden of representation or kind of burden of proof, almost, that's put on women as the kind of victims. And I feel like... It would be really good, actually, if the visibility was not on the women, but on the men who are predominantly the perpetrators. And there has been this hashtag, which in the past few days has started trending as well, which is hashtag him, though. The attention should be focused on the culture, the kind of rape culture Mm. or just general kind of culture of sexism that permeates society. And it's not saying him every man, of course, it's not even most men, but it's many more men than than we think, I think. And there's a kind of, there's a sense that actually, you know, when we talk about the victims of rape or kind of rape statistics, we never really talk about, you know, we say, this many people in London were raped this year. We don't say this many people in London were raped by men this year. So there's a kind of, there's a way that we, as a culture sort of talk about these things. And I think him though, is a an attempt to kind of shift the conversation Yeah, I completely
0: agree. What do you think of the hashtag, I hear you, which uh, many men have been adopting as well?
1: I think that's a good thing. It's a sense of support. It's a sense that that the men who use that hashtag are are not saying, this isn't a problem that concerns me. They're not saying, this is a women's issue, and therefore Mm. this isn't about me as a man. Because I think there is a real danger of seeing kind of sexual violence as a women's issue. And there's also, I think, a danger of saying oh, Harvey Weinstein is an old, horrible old man, a sort of bad apple in Hollywood. And actually, there's a kind of casting couch culture in Hollywood that is evidently rotten, but it permeates everywhere. Lots of workplaces, less glamorous workplaces. Yeah, of course. And I think that's what the Everyday Sexism Project, which has been going on for several years, has been kind of trying to call out.
0: Harvey Weinstein is a tip of a grotesque, patriarchal iceberg. Yeah even if he looks like quite a big one
1: <laughs> <laughs> a big fat tip
0: <laughs> another disgraceful week for men another week to be embarrassed to be a man
1: I don't think that's what this is about though in okay. a way I don't think I don't think this is about to say there's a hashtag for everything there is another one not all men and I think that is important it's not, it's not about sort of pointing the finger and sort of we hate all men. You're all sexual predators because it's evidently not true. Yep. But I yeah, think, yeah, but still, I mean, I but think there's a this- culture. That's the point. There's a culture that harassment, and catcalling, and sexual assault are obviously not the same thing, but they stem from a culture that yeah, fetishizes definitely. women.
0: And I think in the land of, in the age of Donald Trump the white privileged man that's the most disgusting thing you can be don't you think that, that is like Donald the Trump least that is the, that is the least lovely organism on the planet isn't it the white rich man
1: yeah Luckily, and i mean no,
0: none of them are in this podcast right now
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think all of that's true the exciting thing in a sense is that this is now part of very mainstream conversation people are talking about sexism and sort of male privilege, you know, people who probably wouldn't even necessarily say that call themselves feminists. It's something that's has very much permeated our kind of cultural life. Do you think that
0: there is any room for any sense of optimism at all that somehow the in this awful year of misogyny, do you think that there is any glimmer of hope that something might
2: change?
1: Yes. I am an optimist and I really hope that this is a kind of watershed moment. I think it's, you know, it's dominated the news for kind of coming on three weeks now. It's not going away. I think if anything, the story is sort of picking up momentum because now we're hearing, we're just hearing from more and more and more women and from men as well, like we were saying. Um, You know, the the chief uh, of Amazon Studios, Roy Prince, has effectively been been sacked as well for kind of similar allegations of of sexually harassing a producer. I think that these stories are basically just going to going to keep coming and I hope that they do keep coming over the next weeks and and that men who have done these things and are still sitting in positions of power are feeling scared right now because I think that they should be. Yes. I haven't spent the whole week agonizing over this stuff. I have spent much of the week doing that. I did last night go to See some contemporary dance. Ooh. It was quite good at the Barbican Centre, um, the Michael Clark Company. So it was uh, three pieces, only a couple of years old, I think. One was choreographed to Patti Smith, another to David Bowie, and it was very kind of slick and sexy and weird and sort of robotic.
0: Are you a dancer yourself?
1: <laughs> no.
0: Did you know that I'm a trained dancer?
1: Seriously, this is true.
0: I'm I'm trained in Modern jazz, tap, and classical. Wow, well, you I have, are a, a, man I have of hidden a certificate. Talents. I have a certificate, yeah. I had to do this at drama school, and I was, happened to be the worst dancer in my year.
1: No. Um,
0: but, but for some reason, two years in a row, I was made like the sort of star of the dance, and one year I had to be revealed, like in the climax of our final show, in front of. A public audience mm-hmm. uh, revealed in in the middle of a, like a flower made of all the best female dancers were around me. My people in my class. All I had to do was nod my head uh, in God, time. This with sounds the music. like a kind
1: of embodiment of misogynistic culture. Yeah, that and, we've just and, been and talking it, about. it just look,
0: I couldn't even nod my head in time. That,
1: so, so, have you been doing much dancing this week? Or
0: no, I've, I've managed to uh, keep my tap shoes in the cupboard. I've had two contrasting <laughs> culinary experiences. Mm-hmm. One of them was at um, my favourite restaurant, London. This is not the best restaurant in London by any means. It's called Le Garrick. It's in Covent Garden. It's a French restaurant in a sort of basement. And becoming increasingly used in my capacity as food and drink editor, for when I go into restaurants, that sort of waiters sort of fall to their knees and um, <laughs> <God>. <laughs> offer me anything. And um, did
1: they recognise you instantly?
0: No. And this was great. I felt like a sort of A-list Hollywood star, like wearing a funny, like you know, in disguise in contrast to another nice experience but a much stranger one where which was my breakfast on on monday oh yes yeah i went to a hotel in Mayfair, it's called the Mayfair Hotel, mm-hmm. um, to meet a PR. You know, it was a very serious meeting, part of my job. Yeah. And I ordered a, I was late because I went to the wrong hotel, <laughs> and then I ordered some berries, which is, that's just like a nice, that's like a nice thing to order, isn't it? Just like a sort of normal. Uh, sort of
1: restrained, healthy, Sort yeah. It's not like, oh, I'll start the week
0: gently, I'll eat, I'll, eat, I'll eat some blackberries the the PR looked a bit upset by this and said, "Oh well, I'm going to order the lobster brioche," and I just just sort of felt that I was just failing in my job. It was like another thing, so I, I had the lobster as well.
1: And was it delicious?
0: It was. It was done with lemon and butter and garlic and, you know, it was beautiful. Yeah, it was, it was amazing. <laughs> you are about to
1: cry. Yeah, I was,
0: like, thinking about it. I was, like, picking out little bits of lobster for the rest of the day in oh a sort God. of wistful memory of this like, oh, this, like, romantic encounter with the brioche earlier on. So we're in the studio with Raphael Abraham, one of the FT's movie critics. Hi, Raph. Hi. And we're going to talk about the Meyerowitz stories and The Party, two comedies uh, which are in cinemas right now.
1: And Raph, before we turn to you, we're going to listen to a clip from Sally Potter's film The Party. In this clip, Killian Murphy is a guest at a party that's thrown by Kristen Scott-Thomas. She has just been promoted to the position of Shadow Health Minister. Janet. Wonderful.
3: Wonderful. I'm not a bit surprised. <laughs> really? Well, I am. <laughs> oh, surely not. Uh,
1: let's see what I can achieve once I get going.
3: Um, oh, yes, Marianne, uh, Marianne will be delayed. Just, uh,
1: Oh, she works so hard.
3: <laughs> She'll try and get her later oh, on. Oh, that's nice. Um, a drink, oh. a drink. No, 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 you. no. You're, you're busy. Stay where you are. No, um, uh, can I help? Oh, no, 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 no. OK. Where's that mar-
2: marvellous husband of yours, Shannon? Congratulations
1: again. Janice. So Raph, that was a little taste of the party, I think it gives us a sense of the, the sort of dialogue and tone. W- what did you make of the film? Did you like it?
3: I did like it. It's more that I enjoyed it rather than I think it's a, an absolutely brilliant movie. Mm-hmm. But it's extremely entertaining. It's very brisk. It's very witty. It's got a great script. It moves along at a cracking pace. And it's got the most incredible cast. You know, you've also got Cherry Jones and Patricia Clarkson, who's absolutely brilliant. She's and brilliant. And Bruno yeah. Gantz yeah. and all these a great international cast. But it's very much a British film it's got a very british tone to the to the comedy and the dialogue you know you've kind of got these people speaking quite halting ways and you know there's this sort of veneer of politeness when mm. the whole thing begins which starts to crack as it goes along which is obviously a very familiar sort of trope of british comedy and drama and all that
1: and it's quite a short film as well quite a pleasant 71 minutes it's
3: blessedly short isn't absolutely it? i think virtually all films should be about 70 minutes i think very few justify much more it's great and it's got a twist
0: we like a twist?
3: It's got several twists.
0: Does it? I only recognised one twist,
3: really. I actually thought there were too many twists towards the end. In the last 20 minutes, it all sort of crescendos and the pitch gets to this, you know, this high level of, sort of farce. And it, for me, it just, it just got a little bit messy when you know all these revelations piling one on top of the other.
0: Did you feel possibly that this was a film written by a very clever person, acted by extremely talented people, shot by a rather talented cinematographer... And it felt a little bit like all these clever people creating a jigsaw puzzle. And then the final twist was like putting the final bit of the jigsaw in and you're like, oh, look, it's a puffin. And so ultimately, while this is like a clever,
3: satisfying from an intellectual point point of view, it's essentially rather lightweight and pointless film. I agree with that. It's, it's an extremely enjoyable, but yeah, ultimately pretty lightweight film. And, and I think the 70 minute runtime sort of reflects that. What yeah. I think is good is that it's not a two and a half hour lightweight, pointless film, yeah, which that would be quite unfair. a, lot of, would a lot of films are. I'm not certain
0: I agree with you about this. I think there is a sort of British tone. I don't think this British tone has anything to do with Britain. I think it has to do something with some sort of historical way in which we've British films have been. Mm. I was thinking, oh, this is like a drawing room thing. But it's not. Yeah. I, think it, I think it's taken from Agatha Christie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes the tone of well, like, it's that that Miss every, Marple. You know, it's a kind
1: of a gathering of people. Yeah. Everyone has a grievance. Yeah. Everyone it's has like last, a secret to yeah. sort of bear. It's yeah like in
0: the last five minutes of Poirot when he gathers them exactly. in the drawing
3: room. Exactly. So it opens like an episode yeah. of Poirot. So you have Kristen Scott Thomas waving a gun at the camera. This final twist actually is set up right at the beginning. And it is a bit like the opening of a Poirot or something like that, where you've got, you know, the gloved hand committing some dastardly act, and then you know it somehow can yeah. resolve back to that by the end.
1: There's something quite skillful, I think, in how kind of witty and tightly plotted, and it almost it has a kind of rhythm to it. It's very assured and kind of. I enjoyed it. I felt like I was in sort of safe yeah. hands. The, the dialogue but is
3: extremely skillful. snappy and skillful. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah and it has real written. zingers. I mean, skillful it has but dead. This is a dead film. I think, think de- I think dead's a bit final. I think you know. I think if you go in looking for some sort of profound commentary on the state of modern Britain, I think you may come away unsatisfied. Okay. But I think if you go in for sort of an hour and ten minutes of lightweight comedy, banter, and you know a bit of intrigue, I think you know it's great fun.
1: I think one of the things though is Sally Potter did say she wanted to write a state of the nation yep. comedy, and yep. this and it was filmed over two weeks. The Brexit referendum was kind of fell in the middle of these two weeks and so it's trying to be a sort of brexit era comedy and i think that's where it doesn't quite work actually i think it's best when it's being kind of quite sort of high farce and has these great one-liners and great actors i think there are conversations about sort of what do we believe in that the financier played by Cillian murphy versus the sort of scholar the ideological battles around like the nhs or mm. democracy I don't think really, they they just don't really work very well. No,
3: it's like dinner party banter, you know, a few throwaway minutes. So do we think that this is a damning reflection on upper
0: middle class North London society?
3: in as much as, you know, it's a bunch of sort of wealthy, well-to-do people in a bubble in some sort of North London uh, Do think it's two million pound <laughs> pad. Yeah, I think it kind of is damning, maybe unintentionally. So, you know, Sally Potter seems seemingly did, did conceive this as some sort of portrait of broken Britain.
1: I think it's a reflection of a certain kind of strata of society, of people who are successful, comfortable, and, you know, are engaging with political ideas and a kind of left liberal but us sort of sitting around talking about things, you know, there's something sort of leisured. And- yeah. yeah,
3: but it's very heightened. So they become a bit cartoonish. You know, you've got Timothy Spall sitting there looking almost sort of catatonic, Hangul, you know, kind of. Morose. Yeah, you know, something's going on with him. You know, Cillian Murphy is this sort of ridiculously nervous, sweating banker who's obviously we know he's got you he's know, got a habit he's, he's, he's got a habit we know that pretty early on <laughs> he's also got a gun so got they're sort gun. of archetypes They'd, I don't think they're really very believable people the way they're all packed into this these two rooms in the house and everything that plays out infidelity potentially murder you know and all these weighty subjects that are, that are brought in it's not in any way realistic it's sort of you know, it's a pastiche I think it works best as one. If it's trying to be anything else, then I don't know. If it's okay,
0: maybe I was being a bit too harsh about, about it being entirely dead. I think my complaint with this film is that there was only about one genuinely funny moment in it. I can't even remember what it was. Oh. I think it was only about one...
1: I you thought know, there I were a few more than I that. I thought there were was, quite There, quite there were some funny really funny lines.
0: Say, no, no, there are some funny lines in that you can you can look at it and go, oh, yeah, that's a clever line, that's funny. I mean, not actual laugh. And I think it's because you're looking at this sort of pastiche society of, sort of semi-intelligent, sort of pseudo-intellectual, superficial, sort of upper-middle-class bores, of which we can sort of recognise... <laughs> I mean I'm, I'm one of them um, yeah, We have one among ourselves I can see that but it sort of like just felt to me just like a little bit tired a little bit easy and it's sort of like is it anything interesting?
3: Why one really big problem with it is it's extremely stagey you know feels like it should be on the stage in the theatre in the West End it's not cinematic in any way even though it's got this quite sort of well,
1: It's shot in black and it's white It's shot in
3: black and white it's got this these incredible cute camera angles that you haven't seen since sort of German expressionism so it's trying to make it look cinematic but actually Actually, this is a bunch of great actors performing quite theatrically. Yeah, I think it has the hallmarks
0: camera. of a of a really successful, long-running, intensely pointless West End show.
1: <laughs> a great yeah. matinee. Yeah. OK, let's move on. <laughs> the other film we're talking about is Noah Baumbach's The Meyerowitz Stories. So we've gone from kind of North London to New York. This is the tale of a, a New York Jewish family, three grown-up siblings and their... Quite difficult patriarch.
0: So we're going to listen to a clip from the Meyerowitz stories. Um, the voices that we'll hear are Dustin Hoffman, who is on his fourth marriage. His fourth wife is Emma Thompson, who we'll also hear. Dustin Hoffman is a is a failed sculptor, and he has various offspring who are also in the room. One of them is Adam Sandler, who is a sort of troubled guy, and Adam Sandler has a daughter in the room played by Grace Van Patten. We also hear Elizabeth Marvel, who is another one of uh, Dustin Hoffman's offspring, and they're discussing the imminent return of Ben Stiller, who is another son of Dustin Hoffman, clearly <laughs> got around quite a lot. And, um, he and Adam Sandler are at odds with each other.
2: Matthew's coming out from the coast in a few weeks. He corresponded with me about meeting for lunch. Matt is. He has some wealthy clients who are coming over Sunday to look at the dad's work. Matt does? Apparently, they're both admirers of mine.
3: We never hear from him, and then suddenly, poof.
2: That's not true. Matthew and I correspond quite frequently. He texts with me. You guys text? uh, About what? I don't know, things, life. Maybe I'll try to see him when he's here. He's only here for a day to see a client. He wants to see me during that time. Eliza had more shark.
0: Maureen, give my granddaughter more shark.
3: You kids don't eat. It's amazing how much Matthew's clients make when you think about what a teacher or a nurse earned. I think
2: I would have had greater success if I had been more fashionable.
3: Uh, you were always out of step with the times.
2: That's true, I was a vanguard. LJ Shapiro said that about me. You
3: know, LJ's having a retrospective at MoMA.
2: Is he? Mm-hmm. LJ was always very political.
0: He's not a talented, but he's a very skillful operator. So, Raf, what did you make of the Meyerowitz stories?
3: Well, I like the Meyervitz stories. It's warm and funny and, and witty. I came to it sort of having seen the last three Noah Baumbach films and absolutely loving them, I think. Francis Ha, While We're Young, and Mistress America, all absolutely brilliant five-star mini-masterpieces, really. I saw this in Cannes six months ago when it premiered and so I was slightly disappointed because I don't think it's quite up to those past few works Having said that, there are a lot of good things about it. It's got lots of brilliant performances and great dialogue It's a bit rambling. The first hour is Pretty rambling. You know, you've got these, this family and, and you hear all their sort of problems and their fetching and, and all the rest of it. Um, and then, you know, and then it sort of resolves itself into a slightly more conventional, sentimental family drama. The arc of the film is a lot more conventional than the last few Noah Baumbach films.
0: It was interesting that you say it takes a while because I think at the 70 minute mark, my friend who I went to the cinema with, me not having a Netflix. Subscription started sort of moaning with boredom at, at about 60 minutes in. And then he went to the loo and I was thinking that this was uh, sacrilegious because I was still sort of mesmerised by Dustin Hoffman's beard. And then at the 17-minute mark, he persuaded me to leave. I, I thought it was a, it was a crushingly <laughs> boring film. Wow. <laughs> like, wow. The film, I mean, take me to the party anytime. There are so many different characters introduced in the first 20 minutes. You don't know who to follow. You've got all these A-listers. It's completely overwritten. It's pretentious, waffly. It's incredibly wordy. It's unfocused. It's filmed in this pretentious sort of beige colour. I mean, is that beige? I mean, is it sepia? What is that colour? I mean, why do you need it for
3: a start? Well, it, yeah, it's shot by this brilliant cinematographer, in fact, called Robbie Ryan, who shot things like American Honey and um, Slow West and things like that. And it's a strange choice for a comedy because it's very much character and dialogue based. And you sort of think, why do you need to, to bring in this this brilliant cinematographer who, yeah, I mean, kind of, creates these warm colors but I'm not sure what that adds really to the to the film having not seen the second
0: half of this mini masterpiece mm. I which can I just say
1: is unforgivable okay, I didn't, <laughs>
0: no it's not yeah. I, I think I think we should We should, no that's a tyranny I think we should be allowed to walk
3: out of things if they're bad don't you think but I, I don't really think, think you this, should be able this to this
1: film really gets good though I mean I I yeah. enjoyed it a lot it has no I definitely
3: they, they, once these uh, the emotions come to the surface and you, these sort of relationships are resolved it, it does shift and it does become a slightly different film so I think you did miss out
1: because I think the thing is it is a really brilliant dissection of kind of adult siblings of the way that all of those rivalries and tensions that exist in a family of young children never really go away and you might have children and grandchildren but actually all of those grievances really kind of come out and there's a hilarious scene where Ben Stiller and Adam Sandler you know the car park of the the hospital have this kind of fight and it's this kind of rubbish like amazingly choreographed this
0: was was one of the scenes I missed this was later
3: in the film was it Uh,
0: funny did it make you laugh it
1: was really funny there were no
0: laughs if you remember there's not a single laugh in the first 70 minutes is there
3: you know I don't know if there are any laugh out loud
0: loud the cinema was in this total sort of this sort of numbed hush when I was there I want to just ask the same question we asked about the party is this a reflection of a certain New York society is this a reflection of a certain New York sense of
3: humour do you think undoubtedly, you know, this film you listen to the dialogue, the rhythm, the cadences and everything, it's kind of a very recognisably New York Jewish tone and sense of humour, you know, they're obviously Jewish with a surname like Meyerowitz there's nothing made of it in the film you know, there's no, there's no comedy rabbi who turns up or anything like that but nevertheless, I mean, if you, you know, if you know Woody Allen films and Neil Simon plays and whatnot, you know, this is a very recognisable tone I mean, my dad was a New Yorker and I, listening to these, this family sniping at each other, I did start to get into a bit of a cold sweat myself, <laughs> sort of taken back to family discussions. I think some of the some things are definitely overplayed. So Emma Thompson's character I had trouble with because she was this quite shrill over the top. Alcoholic, seemingly uh, fourth wife of Dustin Hoffman, and she dresses in ridiculous boho clothes and cooks outlandish dishes. And she's quite cartoonish, and you know, she's it's overdone. Okay, he was too much. There's this sort of recurring thing of Adam Sandler in his car screaming in traffic. You know, it feels got,
1: very New York. He's
3: got all this unsublimated rage, obviously stemming from the dad. You know, but these things repeat themselves, so they kind of they do wear thin a bit. But I think once Ed, Ben Stiller turns up and the whole dynamic between the two of them, then things get more believable and interesting. And also, we should definitely mention Elizabeth Marvel, who plays the sister, who's... The
1: star of the show,
3: I think. She's fantastic. She's the best thing in the film, and she's really underplayed.
1: I think, though, this point about cultural specificity is quite important, because although it does feel very Woody Allen-ish, very New York, there's something about that specific quality of kind of self-loathing and family dynamics that are true of that. But I think, in a way, in order for something to feel kind of real and believable it has to be quite culturally specific. And I think that's when things work is when they're sort of recognisable of a type. You know, I haven't sat around a kind of Jewish New York dinner table in that way. And yet I completely recognise those family dynamics. Those are... Hundred percent familiar to me.
3: You did mention that some of this <laughs> rang quite true with you, didn't it?
1: <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, my family do listen to the podcast. I'm not going to go into detail, but <laughs> but this felt this felt real. Yeah, yes,
0: I think you're completely right. But cultural specificity is the opposite of. Past each like this. If you're saying that these are types, then I think that is actually the opposite of being culturally specific and it means... It, I, think that-
1: I think that the characters in the party are types. I don't think these guys are necessarily types. They feel a bit more fully formed and I feel yeah. like the structure of the party and the structure of this film are different. The party is essentially a kind of one-act play. There isn't a lot of room for those people to sort of develop as characters within that, whereas this there is a sense, if you watch to the end of the film, of kind of the possibility of change for these characters. The Adam Sandler character, in particular, goes on a kind of journey throughout the arc of the plot. And by the end, you feel like there is a sense that he is a different person. Sally Potter is, she's not doing that with her characters in the party no, at I th- all. No,
3: I think this is much more a sort of ensemble for the Meyerowitz stories. Whereas in the party, to me, it felt like like watching a sort of great jazz ensemble or, or something where you, you just knew at one point somebody was going to get this solo moment and they were g- going to have this moment of grandstanding acting mm. and delivering this monologue you know the marvelous stories is much more about the interactions between the characters and how this changing dynamic takes place over the the course of these of the film
1: so we are not agreed on these films but do go and see them they're out now and the marvelous stories is of course on Netflix as well as in cinemas <laughs> This week on the podcast, we have Inua Ellums. Al, what was it that attracted you to his work?
0: He's an amazing guy. He can't be pigeonholed in any way. You can't say um, he's just a playwright or a performer or, as we'll hear, a walking tour guide <laughs> or just a graphic artist or a visual artist. He's all of these things. And you can't say that he's exactly from one particular place because he's from so many different places. So he, In a way, he sort of belongs in every box but also in none, He's an outsider, yet he seems comfortable in that. And that's sort of oddly inspiring. It's nice to be around. It was a very warm encounter. A line in one of his plays, An Evening with an Immigrant, I think, um, he says, I come from a long line of troublemakers. Um, And he very much sees himself as a troublemaker.
1: A sort of disruptor. Yeah, he's sort of artistically
0: disruptive. And I think that's cool.
1: So An Evening with an Immigrant was at the Edinburgh Festival this year, highly praised, and it's now on tour, I believe. Where else can people catch his work?
0: In such places as Gosport, which is in England, I gather. You can see it all over England. He's, He's touring it and he performs in it himself. And it's very autobiographical and moving and witty and full of... Rich colour and detail. You can also see Barbershop Chronicles, which was this great hit at the uh, West Yorkshire Playhouse and then the National Theatre in London earlier in the summer. Yeah,
1: it got kind of rave reviews, didn't it?
0: It was fantastic and wonderfully, it's returning to the National Theatre in November, and I'm going to go and see it again.
1: I'll come with you.
2: Great. This is a poem called Photograph, which is from my most recent book of poems, which is a sort of chimera of a project. It's part project diary, part memoir, part anthology, and part pamphlet of new poems. And this one is specifically called Photograph Ram Sacrifice in 1988, which is a poem I wrote after a poem called Photograph Sheep Shearing by Joe Shapcott. Her poem is about four men shearing a sheep, and mine is about um, four men preparing a ram for sacrifice in Nigeria when I was about four years old. Here are four men, their knives, a rope, a gutter with sludge slow-moving through its gut. Only one man will actually cut. One has such control over these rugged, rippled horns that he can still sustain a hard stare out at us. Not the modern, staged, suave selfie, but a single-minded look held for the second needed to burn the image on the photographic film. In this way, he looks himself into my future. Two boys man the four hooves tied together, the rope biting through hide. A tricky roll to straddle, to pose while giving the impression the bucking beast is still. One is better at it. The fourth character, the youngest boy, is me. He rests a foot on the ram's throat. He rests a foot on the ram's throat. A knife in one hand, uncle's hand in the other. This ram will be the next for the sacrifice. The anxiety of the two, the one as offering to God, the other for the enormity of the task of Eid's ritual slaughter, is pumping in this one surprising shot of knives and horn in this scene. It is a flash of boy and beast to set your teeth on edge, a slide to cut down to the bone. Do you think you perform your poems better than anyone else? <laughs> wow, definitely not. In fact, sometimes I think I stutter and make many mistakes in the poems. But the poems and no, have come from you. The... the poems have come from me, but there's an element of drama in them which can be better, or if not better, at least differently realised by a trained performer, a trained actor. I wrote a one-man play what I intended to be a one-man play most recently called The Half God of Rainfall which is going to be on at the Tricycle Theatre next year and initially it was to be myself performing it and it's a long poem written in hexametrical terzarima, which is what most of the Odyssey was written in so I intended to perform it myself until I workshopped it with an actress and she did such a fine job that I just took myself completely out of the project. Let's go back. You were born in Nigeria Yes. You came to London when you were 12. Yes. Um, your family were forced to leave. Mm-hmm. Why? My father was a Muslim when he married my mother, who was a Christian, and we lived in northern Nigeria in a small town called Jos. And lots of members of the, the community there were displeased with my father over his choice of wife. Linked to that specifically was the religious implications. And they made life very difficult for us. So were you brought up as a Muslim or a Christian or neither? Both. My sisters almost exclusively went to the church, but I am the only male child in my family, which meant that I'd follow my father to the mosque on Fridays and sometimes during the week, and I'd follow my mother to the church on Sundays. So. Did you feel
0: accepted in both communities?
2: Completely. My parents sheltered us from whatever was happening on the outskirts of our family unit until they couldn't anymore. I felt accepted in both. And when you were 12, it all changed? Yeah, my father traveled to Mecca for the pilgrimage. And when he was there, I saw some things which didn't sit quite right with him. I returned to Nigeria saying he was reconsidering his faith and um, things got a little more complicated. So you moved to London and you settled in easily? (laughs) No, there were various hoops to jump through. One was the realization that I was now at the bottom of the social pecking order. We were sort of like a middle-class family in Nigeria who could send their kids to boarding school. And we went from there to my father being a sort of pizza delivery man at night while studying various things to sort of make him at least major-class accessible, if not actual, in terms of work and access to potential fruitful jobs, etc. And I went to um, a Holland Park school, which was extremely multicultural at the time. But it was just a whole new sensory world and visual world and experience, which differed vastly and sharply from the one I was born into Nigeria. So settling into that was pretty difficult. Also, discovering that such a thing like racism existed, that was quite a bitter pill to swallow. Um, Was it a pill that you had to swallow often? A couple of times the first time someone was outwardly racist to me i didn't understand why i should have been offended they just called me a variation of the n-word and i just kind of looked at him baffled like expecting more of an abusive you know just something to make fun of my size tell me i'm skinny or you know classic insults that i was used to until a friend of mine who remains one of my closest friends to this day who is a caucasian british boy pulled me aside and explained to me what racism was, why it was bad, and why I should never let anyone talk to me like that. And that was the first time I came up close and personal with the concept and that there was something else I could be made fun of, which was entirely beyond my power to control. How old were you when you discovered your gift for writing and performing poetry? I was born in the 80s, which meant that I was surrounded by Lots of teachers telling me I was the best thing in the world. I think lots of 80s babies grow up with that mythology. So when my teachers would compliment my English homeworks, I just thought they were just being teachers. I being was born 80s. in the 80s too. No yeah. one told me I was good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I didn't really take her compliments to heart. I just thought she's saying this to everyone else. Okay. That was the first time someone, an adult, who wasn't connected to me by blood, complemented something that I'd written, but I didn't really take it seriously. It wasn't until I was in Dublin around 2002 that my English teacher just kind of pulled me on side and said, there's just something here. But it was returning to London specifically and going to various poetry events later on that I realized that I had something. And it was because I went to the very first poetry event and I read something, my hands were shaking, but the host pulled me aside and told me he liked what I did. And I thought, ah, okay.
0: Let's go back a little bit. You were in London in Harlem Park, but then your family had to move to Dublin. Yeah.
2: Was that an easy move? Um, no, Dublin was in its infancy regarding race relations. It just felt like England 50 to 70 years previous. So how old were you when you moved? i um, 15 When I arrived in school, I was the only black boy in the entire school. I had my sisters with me, but because of the male identity or the construct of gender, I felt like I had to represent the entire African continent. And definitely I was viewed that way. Did you feel that you had to be an example? uh... Definitely. I felt like if I ever stepped out of line, it was a reflection on my family. It was a reflection on Nigeria as a country and subsequently on Sub-Saharan Africa. It was a lot to carry, but I remember one night just getting frustrated by the ridiculousness of thinking that I had to represent or or that I did in any way, shape or form, and walking home and sitting down in front of a mirror for a good hour, just staring at my face at the creases that were uncommon, at the little pimple scarred sort of battleground that was my skin thinking, who are you going to be? What are the implications of that, and I just decided to be this sort of weird art freak nerd that I was and returning to school the following day and just giving myself to that and everything just kind of changed I kind of sank more into my skin and stood upright and swaggered a little bit more and just stopped caring as much everything kind of changed
0: so after your peripatetic
2: childhood, where is home i don't I don't know. I'm going to say something hopelessly romantic, but home at the moment is in the crook of my girlfriend's neck. It isn't tied to a location. It isn't tied necessarily to a nation, to a history. It's something more personal.
0: You've talked about the three great themes in your work being identity, displacement and destiny. I think I have a sense of what you mean by identity and displacement. But could you say a little more about
2: destiny? Destiny for me is linked with the dilution of my belief in organized religion. Because I went to the mosque and to the church, I gained a plurality of sort of religious belief right from my earliest sort of ability to conceptualize such things. And when I began to school and we had religious education, RE classes in Holland Park and in Dublin, and I learned about things like Zen and Buddhism and the Jewish faith, I just got a sense of a common denominator that existed through, and that as a through line through belief itself. And when I think of Destiny now, I think of it as the acceptance of an organizing principle to existence and to the world in which we live in and and to the universe. And I believe in that. I feel to a certain extent that my whole life prepared me for the thing I'm doing right now, which is writing poetry, writing plays, being the sort of nebulous landless thespian and a storyteller at that you're not only a poet you're a performer graphic designer
0: artist you're a walking tour guide as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> and your influences you've been influenced by hip-hop by the romantic poets mm. do you see yourself as part of an artistic tradition in any way
2: i think i'm part of various artistic traditions and various sort of social drivers which create space for artistic vision and that is specifically talking about the midnight run which is this project i do where i gather complete strangers to explore the streets of a city from 6 p.m to 6 a.m or from 6 p.m to midnight it's about gathering a community of urban immigrants, really, to migrate through a space and discuss the things they believe in and to use the sort of public spaces we find as we walk as kindling grounds for artistic interactions And that is linked to um, the nomadic aspect of my blood and of the Hausa tribe in northern Nigeria that I descend from. And I don't think they saw their practice as anything as that. They just had cattle. They were herding across vast grassland. But for me, there are parallels between what they did and what the situationists did in France. Could I go on a midnight run? Anyone can go on a Midnight Run, you just have to buy a ticket and come.
0: And so, okay, so we'd start at six and say we went on till six in the morning. Roughly, what might we get up to?
2: It depends on where we are. I've held Midnight Runs as far afield as Perth in Australia, Auckland in New Zealand, Paris, Madrid, Berlin rome barcelona etc Well, there were 30 of you or so or? 35 tickets roughly per okay. each midnight run including local artists at least five the artists they determine the things that we do we just ask for interactions that are truly interactive everything from poetry writing to contemporary dance classes to guerrilla gardening, to puppetry to nude life gorilla drawing. Guerrilla gardening. What is guerrilla gardening? Guerrilla <laughs> um, gardening is a project started in the UK actually by a beautiful gentleman called Richard who found disused green spaces in London and just set about tending to them like private gardens. In a way he's trying to beautify the rigidity of living in cities. Poetry tries to beautify the rigidity of the rules around language and I found parallels between that and between what it means to write poetry.
0: A line from one of your poems, I think it might be the first line, I come from a long line of troublemakers. Mm. What does that mean?
2: The the men in my life were quite fictitious characters. My father was one, definitely kind of caused chaos wherever he went in his business life, in his working life, in his domestic life. The first time he met my mother, he told her blankly, I'm going to marry you. First thing he ever said to her. And that sent (laughs) ripples of anger and distrust through her buddy, through her friends, but I guess she got over it, you know. (laughs) So um, definitely did that. And my great, my grandfathers were also difficult, big, large characters who were fully embedded in the machismo that governed their existences in northern Nigeria. One of my great, great, great grandfathers brought Islam to the part of Nigeria where he was from, and that created just rumbles of discomfort. And I definitely feel like... I'm an agent of chaos in the work that I create sometimes and the things that I naturally How? attempt to disrupt. For instance, my work in poetry is kind of chaotic. It's got to the point where I only, only write when I invent projects in which I can create a formula for poetry. I kind of sit within British poetry, but kind of sit outside of it. I sort of just do what I want to and tear up rule books. After Hours is a good example of that. There was a series of, of massive news headlines which hit the poetry community a few years ago about plagiarism, where people would steal other people's poems or would change a few lines in the poems and claim it as their own. And this happened in increasingly difficult and bigger profile competitions. And rather than shrinking away from that, I wanted to write a whole book where that was the prime objective, was to take a poem, completely rework it and see what would happen. And that is where the After Hours book came from. That that has definitely caused some ripples of conversations. That is just one of the chaoses that I try to create. The Midnight Run is also a sort of attempt to disrupt the increase in privatisation of public spaces in a city like London. So it is a political act,
0: There is an element of politics, surely.
2: A small element. But again, in that, um, whenever there is conflict, I either speak to the local security guards, during the midnight run or whilst I'm planning, saying this is what we're doing. But the idea of going through the city at night when it's at its most quiet, for me, that is an element of chaos we're introducing to places as constructed and as sanitised as city life can be you know just getting a group of strangers to walk through a space indefinitely trusting in me that is a way to add some chaos to their life but also to add chaos to to the quietness which takes on city life especially at night so those those are ways in in which I think I am an agent of chaos.
0: There's a school of thought maybe from George Orwell that says that everything we do is political. Mm -hmm. In 2017, in the age of Brexit and Trump and populism, being an artist must be an even more political position to be in than perhaps at
2: other times. Do you agree with that? Definitely. There's always an element of politics in everything that I write. There's this quote, I forget who, I think it was a Russian poet, and she said something like, in this most Christian of worlds, All poets are Jews and I liked the idea that it is written in the constitution of my work to always be tangential to society to always align myself with the underdogs and I always do that anyway. Is this a good time to be an immigrant? Maybe it's a good time to be an immigrant artist because there are lots of conversations Being had which i can plug into but i don't think it's a good time to be a good an immigrant because of the horrendous things happening because of the word and because of the ways in which governments are falling over themselves to be as anti-immigrant as possible governments again are making it difficult for people to cross borders and cross lands even here even here even
0: here you i mean you've lived here you came here in, what, 1996? Yeah. You still haven't been given a passport, is that right? No, I still haven't. Even though a you you visited the Queen at Buckingham Palace, <laughs> you still don't have a...
2: Twice. They still won't give you a passport. No, I mean, it's it's in the works. I, I believe something will break. I've travelled quite extensively with British Council, doing various work of representing British arts, even though I hold a Nigerian passport. And I describe myself as both anyway. But migration movements... Across lands, across seas, is the oldest human habit. Is the one thing we have all collectively done. And the fact that it's becoming such an issue now is really embarrassing. This is so beneath us. We've we've gone to the moon. <laughs> we immigrated <laughs> off the planet. Come on. Like I yeah, it just yeah. It, it angers me. It's senseless. Why is this a good time to be an immigrant artist? Because one can find oneself at the center of the conversation. You're writing from a lived experience. And it means that what you create, what you discuss, is more honest, is more direct, is truer than a fiction, however intricately written. Okay, this is the big question. Why do you write? Why do I write?
0: Is it a compulsion?
2: It's, It's a compulsion, but it's also a belief that we are all fundamentally the same. Could you stop writing if you wanted to? No. Now and then it gets a little bit too much and I switch to just drawing or trying to do graphic design projects, but there are always words biting at me, like coyotes or wolves in the wild, just things wailing, wailing, and I just have to service those voices, those banks of words i don't think i could not after this long of doing it not after discovering that it was always destined for me to do this
0: anyway thank you so much for coming on the podcast thanks for having me
1: that's it for this week the party is out now on general release and the myra of its stories is on netflix
0: in your Ellums is touring his show An Evening with an Immigrant Around England Until December the 2nd And his play Barbershop Chronicles Is at the National Theatre in London From November the 20th
1: Next week we'll be discussing sleep How much is enough What we mean by clean sleep And how it became such a big business
0: And Grizz will chat to Chris Krauss, Author of the cult feminist novel I Love Dick*.
1: Tell us what you think about the films we've discussed and the work of Inua Elms at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash everything else podcast, or email us at everything else at ft.com.
0: Please leave us a review or rating on iTunes. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen online at ft.com forward slash everything else.
1: Everything else is produced by Chica Ayres.
0: We've been Al and Chris.
1: And our music is composed and produced by Fatum.